0: Hey Sis, it's a weekly shakedown of the binary walls around us.
1: Breaking it out and building a bridge.
0: Checking our biases with empathy and humility and questioning the status quo.
1: It's about building allyship that is intentional and confident. Welcome to another podcast episode of Hey Sis. Today, we are excited to invite the Honorable Minister of Diversity, Inclusion and Youth, Bryce Jagger. Back onto the podcast to continue the extremely important discussion surrounding Bill C-6 and acts to amend the criminal code to ban conversion therapy once and for all across Canada.
0: And we're also joined by Ray O'Neill. Ray is an IT worker, maker and activist in Halifax with experience working with the 2SLGBTQ social justice organizations and fighting with the healthcare system for trans and queer inclusive care. She can be found on Twitter at RaeGun2K under the handle NeoVaginaEvangelion. I do. I like that. <laughs> um, welcome to the show. When we first spoke with Minister Jacker, the bill needed to pass another reading in the House. It was successful earlier this spring, and we're pleased to say the vote was unanimously in favour here in Nova Scotia of Bill C-6 to end conversion therapy across Canada. It's now scheduled to move through the Senate this fall, but a potential election is looming and we're going to talk about what could this mean for Bill C6 and hundreds of thousands of people across Canada. Thank you so much for joining us again and welcome to the show and our very first episode of season number two. What I'd like to do is um, I'd like to first share a small piece of an interview I had with a Canadian named Chris. Chris lives here in Nova Scotia and is originally from Ontario. Chris's brother underwent the torturous experience of conversion therapy when Chris was only eight years old, and it had a profound effect on Chris's brother and his entire family. So let's just take a quick listen to this clip before we uh, we dive into our podcast.
2: Yeah, I was quite young. I was about eight years old when that, when that first came out. So I didn't really understand what was going on. But I knew it was something serious.
0: So, your brother, so you have how many siblings in your family?
2: There's six altogether. There's
0: six. And your brother fell where in that line?
2: He was the second oldest.
0: He was the second oldest. And you were the youngest? I'm the
2: second youngest. Second
0: youngest. Okay, mm-hmm. so there was a big spread yeah. in age. So, what exactly do you remember you were aware about uh, first, you know, at the first beginnings, not maybe recognizing that it's conversion therapy? Just, did your brother go away for a while? Yes
2: yeah he was uh i can remember he was the only one in the family that had his own room like the rest of us were in a in a huge bedroom with bunk beds and and uh, he had his own room because he was the oldest living at home at the time and uh i can remember him crying on his bed and then he was gone because we really weren't told what was happening and uh, of course we were probably not old enough to really understand it anyway but uh, uh in later years, it did come out and, and, uh, it was, it was a little difficult to even grasp it then.
0: When your brother came back, um, did you notice any change or what was it like yeah, when he
2: came back? It was interesting when he came back because, uh, he lived with us for a few weeks and then he was gone again, but this time he had moved on his own into his own place and, uh, he got engaged within two or three weeks and he was married within six months.
0: So Chris's brother um, passed away and he had eventually divorced and was able to come out and live his truth but it came at a huge cost to him with estrangement from family members and an and illness and you can hear the full interview with Chris at the end of this podcast.
1: So we know conversion therapy had a profound effect on so many Canadians. Um, so let's kind of jump forward now and talk about where the bill is now up to this point so without naming any names i mean unless you want to <laughs> who are some of the biggest advocates for the success of uh, bill c6 and where it is right now and what are the best ways that support support can be shown both in the senate and outside of the senate
3: first of all i just i want um, chris to know that we've heard many stories like that and um it's been really hard and it's even harder for the people who are sharing their stories and the people who are not with us. And so I want um, everyone to know that uh, we stand on their shoulders and are committed to getting this work done. The legislation did pass the House of Commons, as I was able to share, and it's all in the Senate. We were able to get, and I'll give kudos to Mark Gould, who is a representative of the government in the Senate, to get unanimous consent to waive uh, the the notice period. So that means when the legislation came to the Senate, they were able to start debating it right away. And there was a desire to move forward and find a way forward. But there was um, obstruction that took place because there are some people who do not support the banning of conversion therapy. They say they do, um, but by not advancing the legislation, clearly you don't. Some of the people that I think we should give a major shout out to um, Include the people who have come before us and survivors. I think people that have been um, courageous enough and bold enough to share their stories and help the government draft this legislation. I am really grateful to them. And this legislation was drafted by community. Um, normally what happens is the government drafts legislation and then it usually misses a mark. This legislation got us as close as possible because it was actually community who informed it. And I remember seeing the early drafts of it and I was like, I can't support this. And we went back to the drawing board and I'll give a shout out to Minister uh, Lumetti, the Minister of Justice for actually listening and engaging in his team. Uh, Senator Joyal, who's now retired was the original uh, person who advanced a private uh, Senate bill to actually ban conversion therapy in Canada. The legislation C8 originally now C6 is built upon that, uh, that bill and actually went further because of the insights that were shared and the conversations uh, Senator Joyal had started. No Conversion Canada um, is an organization, EGAL Canada. And there's coalitions of faith groups and professional associations that have rallied around protection for LGBTQ communities. So they deserve shout outs. Um, Randy Boussineau who was a special advisor to the prime minister, who really was instrumental in the pride flag being raised on Parliament Hill, bringing LGBTQ issues to the forefront, not just as a segment of the conversation, but part of every conversation. And that is, I think, something that is essential, is that this is part of people's everyday lives. And that means every single decision we make need to ensure that the voices of diverse communities, including the diverse voices within the LGBTQ2 communities, are being represented. And I can go on to give shout outs, but I also want to give you a shout out to say thank you for having this conversation. Thank you for providing me an opportunity to have a respectful dialogue and to be able to not only listen and learn, but to share
0: thank you minister jagger and I, I'm just wondering, so you talk about like you've heard countless stories and the, and they're just heartbreaking and obviously we wouldn't have gotten to where we are right now without um, without having heard these stories and and these experiences of individuals and then and families and and their impact um the opposition that seems to be coming in from the political side, I, I believe it's twofold. So there's political opposition to the bill, um, potentially wanting... Um, guidelines tighter and and more narrow, um, and then perhaps outside, maybe within the community that that does want to ensure that it's it's say protecting trans youth and trans children. Um, how do you find the balance, and and what specifically are um, from the political side of the opposition um, and and trying to hold up this bill actually coming through? What are what are their specific complaints? Like what what are they finding is wrong with the
3: bill? So they're obviously. um You know, something that we heard a lot on this conversation was instigated by the government, right? Like, other people have instigated but when the government of the day is instigating it, it does receive different attention. And many people were like, we didn't even know what conversion therapy was. We didn't know it existed in Canada. It's always someone else's problem. No, it's our issue. It exists in Canada. It's happening right now. And it should not exist in Canada because... There is plenty of evidence to prove that it doesn't work. The opposition came in many different ways. It came in the legislation doesn't go far enough. Um, And you always try to advance legislation that will not be challenged in court. But, of course, it can be. Um, And some people who said the legislation goes too far. Um, And the definition, the definition is stopping conversations. There, there is a, a, a surety clause within the legislation to make for greater certainty clause, as they call it, within the legislation to ensure that people knew that, yes, you can have conversations with your loved ones and your parents and your guidance counselors. If they're exploratory conversations, I'm still having exploratory conversations and, you know, I'm not a young person technically anymore. And I think that's where, you know, we did help to define that. We did accept amendments to I changed the definition. We worked closely with, and I'll give um, NDP MP Randall Gerritsen a shout out, worked closely with having respectful dialogue to advance. Anywhere the legislation was being watered down, though, we did not accept those amendments. But anything that strengthened it, yes, we were more than willing to do that. So I think people are concerned with the definitions. There's a lot of misinformation about conversations will be stopped. That's not the case. Exploratory conversations are always welcome. It's when the imposition is taking place. Kind of how Chris referred to uh, with his brother, right? Like not knowing. There's crying going on. That it's not. It's not a safe space to discover and get to know yourself. There is this imposition being told. No, you are. Uh, you don't have the feelings that you say you have. You are not attracted to who you say you are. You're going to get married as to how we know what marriage is. And you're going to be miserable for the rest of your life and probably make other people miserable too. That's not right. We want people to lead happy lives. And I think what's challenging to me is as somebody who fought for same-sex marriage, you know, I used to always say to people, like, are you considering having a same-sex marriage? No. Okay. Why not let people who know what they want help lead this conversation? And why can't we be supportive? I'm not going to have to undergo conversion therapy, but I know that I don't want anyone else to have to undergo conversion therapy. So I need to hear from them as to what can the government do to ensure that they can lead true authentic lives um, and actually, you know, be happy.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's the base of
3: it, isn't it? And you can
0: overdefine something, but really it's just, it's respecting how people define themselves no matter, you know, at what age they are and just being free to allow people to explore without judgment um, who they want to love and who they want to be. And, um, and, and that is difficult because we have, you know, these right-wing organizations that um, are really attacking trans youth and saying you can't possibly know your gender and really putting parents in a position of ownership over their children of I tell you who you are going to be um, instead of I love you for whoever you're going to be in the world, which I think, you know, is is what we need to what we need to fight for. Can we can we maybe talk a little bit about how um, how people can support moving this bill forward? How can they? And sorry, actually, before I dive into that question, Ray, did you want to like let's dive in here to the conversation?
4: So, um, like, I appreciate what what you said and and uh, that this bill is is in place. I am concerned that, and I'm sure we'll we'll discuss this later. I am concerned that it may not get through if if an election is called. Um, but a couple of things I noted, like in terms of of allowing people, like accepting people, and allowing people to to live their lives without you know someone attempting to enforce their you know that the, enforce their their queerness out of them. Is, um, I noted when I, I went through the, the, the bill myself, uh, for example, gender expression, um, it, it, it's, it's one thing to say, like, we shouldn't focus too much on the definitions, but expression, identity and sexuality are, are, are given, you know, they are different things. Um, and expression can also suffer the same kind of like the patriarchal, you know, uh, or, or, or religious, um, uh, persecution that it can, that it can, that That identity does um, so someone may not identify for example as a, a trans person, but they might express themselves in the way that isn't um, you know that 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 is congruent with the common perception societal perception of of what aligns to that gender uh, and I feel i I know that's been brought up before um, for for this bill, so i I'm not sure why it's not been added in um, but also. Yeah.
3: Party. It was. It was right. It was. Okay. It was one of the amendments. So we had passed legislation to include gender identity, gender expression. um And so under C-17 in the previous parliament. And then it was a gap that was left here. And that's why the process is important, right? Like introducing it, debating it, sending it to committee, accepting amendments. But that was, that was accepted. Oh, that's great. Okay, yeah. good.
4: good. That's...
3: That's and you're so that's... cool for reading legislation, <laughs> I want to say.
4: <laughs> I'm a bit of a nerd at times. Um, and I guess the other concern I have is, uh, again, I, I'm a denizen of Twitter, the, the dark place. Um, but I do see something that's fairly common these days, unfortunately, with the rise of, like, there's, there's uh, kind of a... a a grassroots transphobic movement that has that has taken root um, in every country, uh, but predominantly is in the UK. We've seen uh, the, the political right in the US push that up, and we are seeing um, we are seeing that in places in Canada. And some of those personalities that have pushed it in the US and the UK are from Canada. Um, so, in those circles they they have a kind of a pride when you see someone and it's heartbreaking that they're a parent and they're saying, hey, I just managed to stop my child from joining the trans cult, as they will call it. Um, and they use these, they, they, they will have like, um, yeah. recently we, we, we fought, uh, we tried to fight, uh, the, the local library for basically stalking a book that in itself is a, both a justification and a guidebook on how to attempt to forcibly convert your, your trans child into cis or heteronormativity. Um, and I don't know if this bill could be used in any way or if there's any plans. Um, cause like, would, for example, if a, if a parent does their best without seeking professional therapy, quote unquote, from a, a conversion therapist, quote unquote, um, would that be child abuse? Would that be recognized as child abuse? Like right now, I don't know if there's anything you can do if there's if you'd suspect that a parent is attempting to enforce uh, their child to be cis.
0: Here in Nova Scotia, there is now um, protection under the, the child welfare that but the child would have to be able to advocate for themselves. But we have seen some children go to social services and say, you know, that their parents are not supporting them. And then they have gotten involved and, and being able to ensure the parents are helping them get the support they need um, to, uh, to socially transition, to access um, any kind of um, transition that they're looking for and, and supports that way. But I think that's a really, really good question because, um for me you know as a as a parent of a trans child and then also through PFLAG Halifax with supporting parents we've had a lot of people parents that have first come to us that have come across this transphobic literature that you're talking about Ray, and they have this idea and this fear it's all fear-mongering that you know what, what if it's a trend what if it's a phase you know what do I do and once we have the proper conversations with parents they're able to they 're able like it 's very quickly they can let that fear disappears, and they get behind their children because they realize well, at the end of the day, loving your child is the most important thing for whoever they are, but if we don 't have those protections under like with conversion therapy with a bill like c six um, it 's sad that often parents find the misinformation first before they find the good information so how do we you know how do we ensure at one point will this bill be able to uh protect parents from uh misinformation uh out there that will lead them to to not supporting their children
3: yeah I just want to add and just say like first of all Ray like these are important points that you're bringing up and we need to be keep having these conversations one piece of legislation this is another step in this tremendous journey that people have been undertaking and you know, I've been doing a lot of work and looking into the, just the history of the, the Stonewall riots of 69 and who were the, the people at the forefront there and where are those people within society today? We're not seeing them front and center. And so, yes, we've made some progress, but you know, especially when it comes to black trans people, they're not very present. And I think it demonstrates the importance of doing this work. And I think we need to make sure that we're not just fighting for some. And that we're actually including trans rights as part of the conversations. And I think that's what I'm hearing from your comments is how do we do more? And I think when it comes to ensuring we get it, we go as far as we can go and then keep pushing to go further. It's all levels of government. And that's why even though, you know, there's a chance that Bill C6 will not, um, pass the Senate, um, should an election be called or whatever the case might be, I think what we can see is that under Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and our government, you've got this commitment, and we're going to introduce that legislation even faster if we're sent back to those benches. So we had C8 the first time. We couldn't get agreement to get it debated. Brought it in, C6, right, exactly the same piece of legislation. Now we've seen it amended. We've seen it strengthened and whatever else. It's coming right back. Like, we're going to keep having these, I think, comfortable conversations. People will say very uncomfortable conversations Until people are comfortable having uncomfortable conversations. If this is not in your backyard, it should not really be for you to stop someone else from leading their true, authentic life. And I think that's what's unfortunate. And the comment in regards to, we have been talking about hate in Canada, right? Like we talk about, you know, anti-Black racism, anti-Indigenous racism, anti-Asian racism, racism, discrimination, Islamophobia, anti-Semitism. But homophobia, trans misogyny, all this exists in Canada. And so how do we actually make sure we're against hate? And the Charter of Rights and Freedoms protects minority rights. And you cannot pick and choose minority rights. And I think these this is why it was kind of interesting to be the Minister of Diversity and Inclusion in Youth. We've never had one in Canada. But this is all in my backyard. My Canada is an inclusive Canada. And we're not there yet. And I'm going to keep fighting to ensure that we are building one. And that's where I want to make sure we continue having these kind of conversations. But... This legislation, I hope it receives royal assent. The Senate still has a chance. So if anybody wants to contact the Senate, let them know. But otherwise, we will be reintroducing it. And, you know, hopefully we come in with a stronger mandate where we can get it passed even faster. Um, because LGBTQ2 rights are human rights, full stop. I don't think they're up for debate anymore.
0: Minister, can you tell me too, just with the, saying this is your, you know, the first time that this position has existed in Canada, and with your experience of going across Canada and talking to voices, are you connecting with a lot of members of the BIPOC community, the BIPOC trans um, non-binary community,
3: the 2SLGBTQ community in general? So, you know, intersectionality is something that comes up, but it still is not necessarily front and center, right? So, Unfortunately, whenever we're having these conversations, the systemic issues that exist in our country are still alive and well. And so oftentimes people get to come with their diversity, but they don't get to come with all of their diversity. And so I think that's where we are trying to instigate those conversations and have them. The LGBTQ2 Secretariat, actually, I should give them a shout out. Uh, now that our government has established an LGBTQ2 Secretariat, Now that we are on way, I think, closer than ever to having the first ever LGBTQ2 action plan, um, this is not about what the government wants to do or not do. This is about LGBTQ2 communities not only being empowered, but enabled to say this is what the government needs to do so that we can be who we are and lead true authentic lives. The federal government, I believe, needs to be a partner in that work. We need to be an ally in that work. But we don't have the answers the community members of the communities do and that's why i think people are now very comfortable working with the lgbtq2 secretariat if you've not been connected to fernand fernand and their their team let me know uh, but the information is publicly available so you're welcome to contact your member of parliament you're welcome to contact me and my team um but you're also welcome to contact the lgbtq2 secretariat it's so wherever um anyone listening and engaging feels comfortable to be able to raise your voices because we are listening, and we want to not only hear you, we want to listen to you, we want to work with you and for you and I think that's what it's about, but yes, Cynthia, yeah, we are seeing a lot more of it um what's been challenging though is oftentimes there's not a lot of resources available all around the country, so people are having to leave their own communities to get services and supports or come to conversations in other areas as much as the pandemic has been absolutely horrible. And it has impacted all Canadians disproportionately, certain segments, including LGBTQ2 communities. The one thing with being virtual has been people have been able to join us from wherever they are. And I've really been thinking about the people who don't have access to reliable internet, but the government did just come out with another recent announcement. Um, and we should see the whole country connected, um, by 2050 or even, I think 2030 or even earlier. Um, and we're actually getting some good partnerships from different levels of government when it comes to broadband connectivity, which means we can also get better supports and connections when it comes to services and supports for LGBTQ communities.
0: I love that because I was just recently talking to a BIPOC business owner um, down on the South Shore and they run a bakery, a cafe bookstore, and they've sadly had to close for a month now because they just can't get the staff um, with, with the pandemic and that, but they also, I was talking just about, um, because it's a queer operated business and, um, they said often a lot of the queer youth, they have to leave the community there because there's just not enough support and there's a lot of transphobia and homophobia. And so, you know, everything that we're, you know, that you're doing, like even the connectivity, I think is really important, um, to support our rural communities and our rural, um, members of the rainbow community, um, And because people shouldn't have to, they shouldn't, we shouldn't still have to be leaving our communities because it's unsafe.
4: Um, Well, and,
1: and I find, I find the biggest thing is exactly as as we've been saying is that as soon as we start having these difficult conversations, they start to become second nature for everyone. And we start feeling more comfortable to be uncomfortable because so many people, they start having conversation, even with someone that they might not know. And as soon as, you know, things that are uncomfortable start coming up, they start shutting down. They're like, Nope, don't want to talk about this. Um, And it's kind of exactly, as you said, like kind of the beauty of COVID as kind of messed up that is to say, is that there's so much more safe spaces and accessibility for people who might not be able to connect and to have conversations like this face to face. We have so many more platforms now, like Twitter, like, you know, podcasts, things like that, where we can converse and have these difficult conversations in hopefully safe spaces.
3: (laughs) And it's also shed the light on people who are uh, in a house but don't have a safe home. Right? Like, I think that's where it's really been interesting and put kind of a lot of those things into perspective. I do want to just jump off the conversation about businesses. Um, you know, I always say like building a consciously more inclusive Canada. We need to start being more conscious about who we're supporting in our communities and what positions they take and what kind of Canada they're building. And I think when it comes to diverse owned businesses, getting to know who the business owners are in our communities and going out of our way to support them, and plug them is really important now more than ever. And I'll tell you, like, I, you know, was purchasing some stuff from the East coast and I actually did the research to make sure it was supporting Canadian jobs and Canadians rather than just having the take on it. And I think, and you, we should try to plug it more so. And the federal government's also doing better job with procurement. So we actually have a strategy to procure Black-owned businesses, Indigenous-owned businesses, um, but we really need to make sure that we're procuring from LGBTQ2-owned businesses, and especially all the intersectionality that comes with all of the diversity of our country.
4: Um, so one thing that's often, like, it, kind of moving past the, the, the bill into just general, like, acceptance of the LGBTQ community, um, one thing that has often been asked of, of the government, a number of times has been um, so we could say, for example, that you can have systemic attempts to um, convert people. If, if you put obstacles in their way uh, that they can't express themselves appropriately, you can run into, you know, they're, they're, they're going to feel pressured to conform. Um, and in one of these ways has been through Canadian blood services uh this is a long standing issue that uh like even the UK recently dropped the the requirement uh the 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 ban on on blood from uh n 2 m donations and and like you have Canadian blood services still at this point is still a months Wait, like, what's one or three months wait between, uh, having had sexual intercourse and being able to donate blood, which is a big ask. And it still classifies, uh, transgender women as men. Uh, or at least pre op at least transgender women who have not, uh, undergone bottom, uh, bottom surgery, which these are both standards that should have been left back in the 80s. And, and it's, it's a shame. We're, we're one of the we're, we're one of few developed nations still doing this, and it's 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 awful. So someone, that from a systemic standpoint, the, the government is effectively saying, you know, it, you, we we need your blood, but if if you are, you know, if you're engaging in intercourse with another man, then we, we don't. Um, and we've seen it often, kind of passed off as like, well, they're arm's length, they're arm's length, but they have to follow the guidelines and the laws set forth by legislation and by the government. And so the government has options there and, and it's, it's still a problem. There's still problematic. What I'm getting at is there's still problematic things, um, on, on, ongoing. And and the other thing that kind of ties into the rest of it is we've often seen these kinds of promises and legislations come in and collapse. Uh, and there's, there's no, there's, there's no legal reason for us to be fearing an election in a couple of months it's entirely politically driven and there's there's really a you know one party that's would be capable of preventing that right now um so i guess if, if we're discussing like overall the ability to allow people to to express themselves and live their lives one would be you know remove some of those barriers that we do have still in our system, like Canadian blood services, and not just reducing it from a year to three months and you know, not living in stress, that we we basically get used, you know, typically at the end of an election cycle as as kind of a virtue signal and then we 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 get abandoned. And and that's what I, everyone fears. I'm gonna
3: jump in there. I'm gonna jump in Ray because I think yeah. same virtue signaling in some of the talking points, I feel like you're actually on conservative media. Um I actually think it's unfortunate that you would feel that the work that the federal government is doing under the leadership of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is virtue signaling. This is work that we started in 2015 and there was a majority government and there was no sign of an election for four years. But unfortunately it did not come to the forefront until the world is in disaster because we don't necessarily take time to look at what's taking place. I agree with you when it comes to the blood ban; it needs to be lifted. It's part of our platform. But at the same time, I also agree with you that legislation um can be undone. So if we actually start making these partisan decisions, like I think you need political will, but I don't think they should be partisan. I don't believe that this is, I actually believe the legislation was introduced as quickly as possible. And if members of the House of Commons wanted to see it advanced, like we were able to do for supports for COVID, we could have seen that legislation passed faster. But it takes political will to say that we don't believe conversion therapy should exist in Canada and then to have a free vote when majority of your members are not supporting it or are continuing the debate going when they clearly know what their position is, I think is clear about what their position is. When it comes to the blood ban, it is a commitment. I can tell you, I was part of a conversation with Minister Haidu. Um, I actually thought I'd be the person going in and being a little bit more um, crass and pushing uh, HEMA, Quebec and blood Canadian Blood Services. But it actually was Minister Haidu um, who's actually gotten to know this issue and saying, like, why can we not have this request? You know, you wanted research. We funded 15 research projects. We understand the COVID pandemic has slowed you down a little bit. We've all found ways to continue doing the work we need to do. What's taking so long? The request for plasma has been put in, just not for blood. They have signaled Canadian Blood Services that they'll put the request in by the end of the year. The minute that hit news, the first comment that came out of me, including in writing, was if you think you can do it by the end of the year, why can't you do it now? Why can't we have the blood ban lifted for 2022? First day, like come out of the gate with that decision. So we're constantly pushing too. but I'll tell you as somebody who's been involved in the political channels, um, I am really, I, I do get concerned that a government will come in and undo the work we've done. We've been here before. Like this work that we're doing against hate and racism. I've been here before. And we saw 10 years of a government that was elected by Canadians through a democracy that put that work, not even on the back burner. They got rid of it.
0: You I think that's to where to we need the border, to Right? You just have to look at south of the border, too. And, and uh, I think we need to focus on Canada. Canada I don't think I just it. It being undone. Like, it's it yeah. me because you've done a lot of really great work. And and I know we've gotten off topic a little bit here. Um, and it's
3: a different topic. Keep it's pushing forward. Uh, like yeah. let you, letting you know that there's many people who also want to see it lifted. Ray, you're absolutely correct. Like we have to go to a behavior-based model. The questions that are being asked are should have been left well before any of us were born, for sure. Um, I was born in the '80s, so I think I should have been born in a world that was more inclusive. Um, but at the same time, we're pushing stats. Can if you see anything like that, I will tell you my email address. Email me, message me, let me know. I will be an elected voice for you, regardless of where you live. And we have many colleagues that are willing to do that work. But I, I I promise you wholeheartedly, this is not about virtue signaling. And I'm so sorry if that's how people feel, but that's not what it's about. It really is about building a truly inclusive candidate, getting it done. Um, and we have to get away from that feeling. And I need to understand why people feel like that. So Ray, we want to have a one-off conversation as to how do we actually get into people's backyards and know what the commitment is. And validating that work so that we are not feeling like we're being used and abused. That you're not feeling like you're being used because that's not cool. And I apologize that you feel that way because that's not the intention at all. But how you feel is valid, and it's important we hear it. So I thank you for sharing that with me.
4: If I can, if I can jump in a bit. Um, so I am communicating a position uh, not only for myself, but this is a position that I've seen within the community quite significantly. Is that the, there's a cynicism. Um, and, and I, I, I thank you for thanking me, but you, you, you know, even just by me using the, the term, and it, it's a term that we are, we do fear because it is, you know, the way it's misappropriated by conservative media is one thing where it's, it's like any, any efforts, any actually, you know, efforts that are made to be more inclusive, they will, they will call virtue signaling. Um, where it's used from a social justice standpoint is if you claim you will, if you claim you'll do something, but it never follows through, and the aims for for the claim is to, um, you know, it, it's for self benefit, but it's not you're not doing you're not actually following through on it. Uh, and you started it all by comparing me to conservative media, which is probably the first person I've ever. It's the first time I've ever been. Con-
3: I want to clarify that I'm not comparing <laughs> you. I said it feels like you've been reading conservative media. <laughs> I I would not compare you to it.
4: I feel like you've been reading it. So it's like, it's probably the first time that's ever been used in context to anything I've said. Uh, But yeah, it's a fear. Like there's a cynicism within multiple marginalized communities, but I'll speak for people I've spoken to within the queer community is that we are often used as, as more of a prop than, than used um, than actually respected. And, and, um, I, I don't doubt the efforts that you've put in, um, I, I'm sure you've put in a lot of these efforts, I am glad, like when you, you mentioned that it was amended to add gender expression after feedback, that is brilliant, I, that is great, um, but I guess right now we're still in a position now where it's we're, we're being told um, this might collapse on the floor, uh, if you want it back, vote for us again. And it's hard not to read an element of cynicism there like it's it's this we, we this is what we see uh at the public level it's it may not be what you're intending, and it's certainly i'm not casting that on your shoulders alone, but it's what we see you know when we see these things happening. It's very important that this goes through and and you know i have very i i, I have opinions about the conservative party for sure mm-hmm. um but you know it, it it's it's to, it kind of feels like we're held out a gun sometimes. Yeah,
3: and I just—I know I know we have no time left, but I just want to say, first of all, Ray, thank you for this conversation. Um, and I do want to clarify that no, it's not a comparison of you, but it just sounds like the talking points that I get from people who, um. Would use it. I also actually appreciated the, the, the differentiation between virtual signaling in one context versus another context. And I think that's part of the education and information that these conversations provide. Um, and I'll tell you, I've never heard that before, but now I took a note of it and I'm going to use that. Um, because I actually think that's where it does, it does explain a lot of the conversations I've had as to where people are at. And you have to meet people where they're at. So if there's anything we can do, this is not about only voting liberal. No, Find where that's- parties stand. And yeah. I think that's where like, there's a difference between political will and partisanship. I think when we are advancing a country that is more consciously inclusive, political will is needed. A leader of a political party can have a position. But if the people who support their party are not following them, what kind of political leadership is that? And I think that's what it comes down to is we now see that conversion therapy is is important to people we know that canadians want it ridded in our society it should not exist when we originally had that in our legislation in our platform people were like why is this here it shouldn't matter today it matters so as much as it might feel like legislation wasn't passed we haven't come far enough i can tell you in four years not even in six years especially in 2019 when it was put into the platform in these two years people talk about conversion therapy who have never spoken about it before. And they want a Canada where conversion therapy does not exist. So it's a question that matters to them. Is it their ballot question? It's, it's important enough to them that it could be. And I think that's what it comes down to is saying, who are we considering and who are we not considering? Do trans people matter? Yes, their, their lives matter as to what they can contribute and what they're living right now. And I think when it comes to the intersectionality of Black trans people who started the Stonewall Riots, we should be acknowledging them and like the sacrifices and the courage that they brought to the forefront and recognizing that they're not at our decision making tables. So yes, we've come a long way. But what's clear to me is we have a lot further to go. I want to help us get there. And I'm not saying there's only one way to get there. There's plenty ways to get there. But let's get there is what I'm saying. And I want to make sure that we don't turn the clock back and that we keep moving forward. Um, so I really want to thank you. Um, Ray, nice to virtually meet you. I can't wait till we continue. I do see you on Twitter. I appreciate you being on Twitter because uh, it instigates conversations and voices that we don't always have. Cynthia and Isaac, I want to say thank you for creating the space for these conversations. If there's anything that I can do more or make available, there's comments or questions or feedback that comes out. Please keep the conversation going. And sometimes it feels like we're having conversations and no actions. In Canada, we're soon going to have an LGBTQ2 action plan, regardless of whether there's an election or not. We have an established LGBTQ2 secretariat. The blood ban has been signaled that it will be lifted. We're going to make sure it is lifted because it does not belong. But we also want to see... Canadian Blood Services, and all of our models go to a behavior-based model so that it's not outdated because evidence-based decision-making matters. We also have the Capacity Fund, which supported like 70-something projects, $15 million, and hopefully based on what we hear from the consultations of the action plan, there's more of that so that there's always supports available and that more communities are able to have these communities. And I can go on forever, but the last thing I want you to say is whenever we make any decision lgbtq voices should be part of them, and that's what I think is important to me. It's not about Boris Chang or the Minister of Diversity and Inclusion and in Youth representing LGBTQ2 voices at the cabinet table. No, it's about every minister, every elected official at every level, be concerned with the citizens of their communities. And allowing them to be their true, authentic selves. I think we're going to get there. We just have a lot more work to yeah. do. Yeah,
1: just got to talk more about it and be more vocal, and uh that's how that's how change happens. And so, thank you so much. Yeah, yeah,
0: thank you so much. It's been a fun hour. I have uh, I really appreciate all the voices at the table.
4: Thank you for letting me speak to to you all, and I do hope the, the bill passes. And yeah, thanks a lot. We'll keep watching.
1: <laughs> thank you so much for joining. Thank you, all right, well, take we'll care, great, everyone.
4: Bye okay.
0: for
3: now. Bye.
0: We had the opportunity to speak with Chris and Chris's family had a child who underwent conversion therapy as a young boy growing up in a family with a brother who underwent conversion therapy and came out the other side I am we thought it would be great to have a conversation with Chris about what that was like um, growing up in that kind of environment how much of uh, how much of what was going on Chris was actually aware of at the time and the impact that it had on him as a brother to somebody and also his, his overall family. Welcome, Chris. Hi, thank you. Well, how old were you um, that you can remember when your brother perhaps was first under, undergoing conversion therapy?
2: Yeah, I was quite young. I was about eight years old when that, when that first came out. So I didn't really understand what was going on but I knew it was something serious.
0: So your brother, so you have how many siblings in your family?
2: There's six altogether. There's
0: six. And your brother fell where in that line?
2: He was the second oldest.
0: He was the second oldest. And you were the youngest? I'm the second youngest. Second youngest. Okay. Mm -hmm. So there was a big spread in age. So what exactly do you remember you were aware about uh, at the first first beginnings, not maybe recognizing that it's conversion therapy? did, Did your brother go away for a while? Yes.
2: Yeah. He was, uh, I can remember he was the only one in the family that had his own room. Like the rest of us were in a, in a huge bedroom with bunk beds and, and, uh, he had his own room cause he was the oldest living at home at the time. And, uh, I can remember him crying on his bed and then he was gone.
0: Oh, that must've been really hard for, for you and for all yeah, the siblings.
2: Because we really weren't told what was happening and, uh, course, we were probably not old enough to really understand it anyway, but uh, uh, in later years, it did come out, and, and, and uh, it was it was a little difficult to even grasp it then.
0: How long was he gone for? Do you have an idea? Yeah. I mean, being quite young, at age, maybe a concept of time was tricky. Yeah, he
2: was gone for three or four months.
0: Okay. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, um, when when your brother came back... Um, Did you notice any change or what was it like when he came back?
2: It was interesting when he came back because uh, he lived with us for a few weeks and then he was gone again. But this time he had moved on his own into his own place. And uh, he got engaged within two or three weeks and he was married within six months.
0: And so at this age, how old
2: would your brother have been? Oh, good question there. He would be 16 years older than me. So he would have been 24, maybe.
0: And so looking back on that, um, your brother always identified as being gay. Yeah,
2: but but we didn't realize what was going on, of course, maybe because of my age or, or maybe because of the times. It was in the 1960s. So... Um,
0: 1960s and sort of. Oh, we
2: were in uh, Windsor, Ontario. At Windsor. The time. Okay, so yeah. not
0: rural. No. Um, but your family, would you say, was sort of fairly, was there sort of a religious background or more sort of strict, just, um, ideas on the roles of a boy and the royal, roles of a girl within your family? Both and...
2: of that, yeah. Okay. We, we were, we were, uh, um, practicing Catholics, but, yeah. um, Because there were five boys and one girl in the family, we knew the roles of a boy and the roles of a girl, for sure.
0: I can only imagine that must have been so difficult for your eldest or second eldest uh, brother then growing up who knew himself to identify differently and maybe not being able to express that openly to anybody within the family. Oh,
2: that's for sure. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So Mm -hmm. at what point did he confide to you or what point did you kind of
2: connect together on Ah, uh, yeah it was it was quite a bit later in life he would he would have been divorced by then with with two children um that would have been in the late 1970s when he confided that that he was gay i guess he was officially coming out at that time to let the world know that you know he's not hiding it anymore and uh yeah, I didn't take it very well because of the upbringing that, that all the boys in our family had. Um, we, uh, what's the word? We knew what the roles of a guy was, you know, the macho thing and the, you know, you, you need to, Fight! You need to go after girls. You need to spit. You need to do this <laughs> and uh, and uh, and uh, <laughs> but so I'm yeah. Put all
0: the in and away you go. That's <laughs> it. <Right the> <laughs> Randy Boissoneau, um the former liaison on diversity to Justin Trudeau, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, has said that conversion therapy is akin to torture um, mm-hmm. when they describe, you know, the idea of trying to fix someone. And it sounds like when your brother came home, he was there for a couple of months and he went off and, and he got married qu- fairly quickly. So he was yeah. really, I guess, trying to conform to whatever ideal society seemed to have said that this is where you have to fit. This is where you have to be. Um, exactly.
2: Exactly. He barely knew this woman, and and that was his first objective when he got out of the institution that he was put into, was his time to find a wife and get married, because that's what men do.
0: Mm, and did he seem, like, how, how did he seem to you? Like, did he, do you remember your brother being happy?
2: No, never.
0: Never. <laughs> he uh, was
2: always, uh, he always had a nervous look about him, like he was not in the right place at the right time, ever. And he he had a lot of burden put on him because when, when we were young, my mother was ill with with cancer on and off over the years, and and him being the eldest, that was home at the time, was the one that looked after the family. So right. he took on the role as not only as the eldest brother, but as as he Pastor. did the motherly duties duties as well.
0: Right, right. Mm-hmm. And your brother, um, your brother passed away. Yes, he did. How long ago was
2: that? That was in 2002.
0: 2002. So he had, though, found some happiness in
2: his life towards the end? Yeah. Mm. But in his happiness, he also became ill. So uh, the Mm. last couple of years of his life was was spent um, being comfortable with who he was. But I I would dare to say that that it would have been at at a cost.
0: Right, the toll that it, it took, and, and so often you do see, and I've I've spoke to many members of the LGBTQ community that describe feelings of um, you know illness and and symptomatic um, uh, sim- symptomatic um, strains on their body that has led to various illnesses. That when they come out, and it's that lifting and that that freedom of finally being able to say, no, this is me, and I have to live my truth. Um, often those symptoms will go away but then on the flip side with your brother it's like maybe carrying that stress for so long over the years um it just really took its toll on his body and
2: it did but i mean he had cancer when when he passed away but i'm pretty sure that that he had aids but he wasn't about to tell anyone that and and he made he made it sh- um Known that the staff at the hospital were not going to discuss anything about his illness other than that he had cancer, and that was it. Uh,
0: there was so much shame, <coughs> shame attached to to that it must have been really awful and and he must have felt quite alone going going through that um, in at that time. And oh,
2: definitely, yes, and I think it was partly because not only that he was ashamed of the fact that that he ended up getting AIDS. Um, he didn't want his macho brothers t- to be telling him, I told you so. Mm. And, and that was, you know, that's something that he, he lived with until the day he died.
0: So. Wow. And what would, you, what would you say to him now if you had the opportunity oh, to? <laughs> that's a loaded <laughs> question, isn't it? That's big.
2: Well, it's funny yeah. because, I mean, when he was when he was ill, he was living on his own and, and I would go and visit him from Nova Scotia to to Ontario every other weekend. And I would, you know, do his grocery shopping for him and, and clean his house and things like that and do his laundry. And um, we got to have some some really deep conversations. And, and one of the conversations was of me struggling in my own marriage. And he basically set me on the right track to tell me that if I wasn't happy, that I should get out of it. And, and I end up doing that. So in, in that sense, I mean, because he said to me, like, um, I lived my whole life unhappy. And he says, you know, I'm, I'm just, I know from experience that you need to make yourself happy. So in doing that, I think that I can actually say that he would be one of my heroes. Mm-hmm.
0: And I'm like, just hearing that, I just think it's so incredible that you were able to drive to see him every other weekend and just be there for him um, in a way that you couldn't have been as a small child when you were eight no, years old. That's for um, sure. And growing up. Um, does it surprise you, Chris, that uh, conversion therapy is still happening in Canada?
2: It sure does. I mean, because basically what they said was he had had a nervous breakdown and he needed to go there to recuperate. Mm. And and what it was, was they were trying to get him thinking the way that a man should think again. And the Hi. main thing that, that I find like with my brother was, I have this thing about bravery. So whether it's somebody that decides that they're going to come out in front of a pe- bunch of judgmental people, that's brave. I think that the information that's out there right now makes the child himself or herself... Um, more aware of, of who they are. So, and. To
0: so mean like educating around is a good thing now because it's getting sure. kids that language younger to be able to advocate for
1: themselves. But I
2: think because the information is more available to, to anyone that it gives the, the child the opportunity to show how brave they are, you know, to, to, to step up and, and let people know who they are.
0: And they are brave and and it's so true, like would you, you it's know,
2: amazing how brave kids are that have these issues in their lives compared to when I was a kid? I mean bravery was you know uh, it
0: was a different expectations right on yeah what bravery was, brave was going to
2: to beat up your neighbor because he was picking on your little sister. <laughs> that was brave. But now it's, it's, it's life-changing bravery. You know what I mean? It's Of course you know what I yeah. mean. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I
0: know. Thank you so much for, for sharing your story. Well, that's all the time we have today, folks. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Hey Sis.
1: If you have any questions you want to ask or want to join in on the conversation, email us at connect at simplygoodform.com.
0: Thank you all. And remember, inclusion matters.